Well, church, we're in a series in the book of Acts, and the series is called First Followers. And we're learning from the the first followers of Jesus, the early church. So if you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. The title of today's message is The Promised Spirit. You know, we've all been anxious for something to happen, right? Whether it's a wedding or the birth of a baby or a vacation. And so like a, a child in the, the backseat of the car, we can cry out, man, are we there yet? Is this going to happen? Well, we're there. It's finally happening. Jesus pours out his spirit on his disciples in the place where they were meeting erupts with noise. Something like wind and fire fills the room where they're waiting. And a crowd quickly gathers because each one in the crowd is hearing the disciples speaking in their own native tongue. Now some think the followers of Jesus are drunk and they make fun of them, while others are hanging back saying, what does all this mean? So never before had the climate of expectation and anticipation been so high in Jerusalem. That's where we are. We're going to look at three things. The promised spirit poured out. The promised king proclaimed, and the promise is for you. So let's read Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians. Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. We'll pause there. Three things. The promised spirit poured out. The promised king proclaimed. The promise is for you. First, the promised spirit poured out. It's finally happening. Do you remember Acts chapter 1? Jesus told the disciples, hey, wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait. I'm going to pour out the Spirit. You will be empowered to be my witnesses. And they were waiting. The promised Spirit here in Acts chapter 2 is poured out. Now, it's happening on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost means 50th and was another way to refer to the Harvest Festival, also known as Feast of Weeks, which occurred 50 days after the Passover festival. There were three very important festivals uh, to, to the Jews. Uh, And still to this day, you've got Passover, Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so here, gathered in Jerusalem, would have been uh, thousands upon thousands of of, uh, 
of Jews from all over, and we, we heard the list of where they were from, gathered together to celebrate these feasts. Now, they had already celebrated Passover. You remember Passover? Uh, if you know the story of Israel, they were held captive to the Egyptians. They were enslaved. And God set them free through a series of plagues. The last uh, was uh, a plague that really God went and struck down the firstborn of everyone who did not put the blood of the lamb above their doorposts. But all those who put the blood of the lamb above their doorposts and hid inside were safe from God's judgment. And the angel passed over their home. That's where you get Passover. And so here we are. They're celebrating Passover. They're 50 days. Now they're celebrating the Feast of Weeks. This is seven weeks from Passover, also known as the Day of First Fruits. It was a harvest festival, a celebration of God's faithfulness and provision, but it was also a celebration of the giving of the law. Because 50 days after Israel was delivered from Egypt, what happened? They found themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. If you remember the story, Moses was the only one who would ascend the mountain, and he received the law of God. And all of Israel was afraid to even touch or approach the mountain. Why? There was just, uh, the mountain was uh, burning with fire on top, and there was lightning, and, and it was a, a, just a terrifying scene. But Moses ascended the mountain, and he received the law. He received the commandments. God was making and establishing a covenant with the nation of Israel that day, and it was written on stone. And here Moses comes down from the mountain and presents the law to the children of Israel. So here, 50 days after Passover, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving the, the law from God. Well, fast forward uh, to where they are in Acts chapter 2, and they're gathered in Jerusalem celebrating these, these festivals. It's 50 days after Passover, and they're celebrating the giving of the law. Interesting. Pentecost was a joyful celebration with roots in the giving of the laws, I've said. Now here, 50 days after Passover, when Jesus died, 50 days after the perfect Passover lamb died on the cross, Jesus has ascended to heaven, not onto a mountain, but he ascended he- heaven to heaven, and he, he is pouring out now the promised Holy Spirit who would write the law not on stone but on hearts. It's a significant event. And we're given two symbols that represent God's presence. What did they hear? In Acts 2, verse 2, they heard the blowing of a violent wind that came from heaven. What's the significance of this wind? In the prophet Ezekiel, we learn in Ezekiel 37, there was this vision of what God would do when he established his new covenant. And the prophet saw a valley filled with dry bones or dead bodies. But the breath of God comes and brings life and establishes this vast army. And so here the wind or the breath of God comes and brings life. And here in Acts chapter 2, it's the, the wind, the breath of God being blown. What did they see? They saw what seemed like tongues of fire. Now remember what fire represents in the story of Israel. I've already talked about how Moses ascended Mount Sinai where there was this, this great fire on the top of the mountain and, 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 uh, and smoke. And, and so we see the fire there. But also, if, if you step back in the story of Israel, when Moses approached the bush, it was what? On fire, where God reveals himself. Well, where else do we see fire happening? Whenever the children of Israel were walking uh, uh, in the desert, 
At night, there was a flame, a pillar of fire with them. When they built, when Solomon built the temple, the place of worship, when they sacrificed to God, a pillar of fire drops out of heaven and consumes the offering. Fire, it represents God's presence, his holy presence. And the promise of the prophets was that God would, would fill a new temple, essentially. But now what we see is that the fire isn't resting in one location or one, one temple, but the fire, something like flames of fire, comes to rest on each one. The body of Christ, his first followers, the new temple. God's presence has come. What else would you expect? What other symbols would you expect with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? What's the result? It says that they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in languages, known languages of those who had traveled to Jerusalem for the festivities. They hadn't taken an expedited course in these languages. They, it was a supernatural occurrence, and they spoke, and all at once they were speaking the wonders of God in languages they hadn't known before. This was Tongues. Now, we hear of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, and that presents a spiritual gift as well called tongues. And specifically in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul expects that no one in the church at Corinth will understand the language of the tongue spoken there. It's an unintelligible language spoken privately for the building up of the individual. And if it's spoken publicly, it's to be interpreted, which is another gift of the Spirit, for the edification of the body. But we're not in Corinthians now, we're in Acts. And in Acts, what they were hearing were known languages. And people are gathered from all parts of of that area uh, of the known world, and they're gathered for these festivities. Specifically, these are Jews that are gathered to celebrate Passover, to celebrate Pentecost. The place the disciples gathered, it must have been uh, located near the temple. Because when this happened the people who were gathered for these festivities, and again, Jerusalem's bursting at the seams, so people would have been camping out, people would have been staying in homes of their friends and family, and as this this loud noise happens, this violent wind that comes in, and then the proclamation of the wonders of God in their known languages is happening, and they're coming out of where they were staying, this upper room, and everyone's hearing this from all over, and they're, what is going on? They're perplexed, they're amazed, and you would be too. And so they gather around, Representatives from every tribe of Israel are now being introduced to the wonders of God, to Jesus, their Messiah. Do you remember when the disciples were saying to Jesus in chapter 1, when are you going to restore Israel? When are you going to bring Israel together? When are you going to do a work in Israel? And see, Jesus had plans not only for national Israel, but for the whole world. But what's he doing here? Jews that had been scattered all over, gathered together for the festivities, are now hearing the wonders of God in their own language. They're hearing of Jesus, their Messiah. He's restoring Israel, but he's also restoring the whole world. What he would start through the nation of Israel, who would be a light through the Jews, and eventually would reach the non-Jews, the Gentiles, which we'll see in the book of Acts. But it begins in the heart of the Jews, of the Israelites who are hearing the wonders of God proclaimed. The promised spirit is beginning to establish a promised people. 
And the promised spirit is resting on and in that people, that particular people, those who would follow Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Some see the events happening in Acts chapter 2 as a reverse of what happened in Genesis 6 with Babel. Do you remember that story where all of humankind comes together and they, they uh, uh, build this high tower up to heaven and they're trying to make a name for themselves? There's one language. And God comes down in judgment but also express mercy. And he scatters mankind. He divides them with languages. Well, here in Acts 2, we're seeing that language is no longer a barrier. And that now that God's people are proclaiming the wonders of God, he's bringing all these languages, all these people groups together. Now, some made fun of the first followers of Jesus. Some made fun of the apostles and the disciples who were gathered. They they didn't get what was going on. They just heard all this noise and all these languages, and it sounded like babble to them. And they said, they must be drunk. These guys must be drunk. They had a little too much to drink maybe the night before. They're they're continuing the drink here this morning. Others are amazed. They're perplexed. And they ask each other, what does this mean? They're starting to connect the dots. Here we are. Pentecost, 50 days from Passover. You see, here they were gathered together to celebrate these festivities And all of these Israelites would have been anticipating God to do something, to send the promised Messiah, to pour out his spirit, to write this new covenant uh, and establish this new covenant and to write the law in their hearts, not knowing how it would happen. There was a a growing just anticipation in in, in all of Israel. And here, they're starting to look around and and say, what's going on here? What does all this mean? Well, Peter He gets up and he tells him what it means. Let's keep going. Verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. He's talking about earth-shattering events. Earth-shattering events. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, the king, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to, to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The promised king is proclaimed. Jesus is resurrected and exalted. The apostles, the disciples were empowered They were told that they would be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, and that's exactly what Peter goes on to do. Peter, Peter stood up. You remember Peter, the one who was scared of of the attendant when he was standing around the fire as Jesus was brought to this kind of this uh, uh, mock trial, this unjust trial, and and Peter was, was denying Jesus left and right there that night. But the promised spirit had come and had empowered this man to proclaim Christ, to be a witness. And in verses 17 through 22, he's quoting the prophet Joel. He's leaning on the prophets, and he's answering, what does this mean? And as we read the prophet Joel, chapter, actually it's Joel 2, verses 28 through 32 that Peter is quoting, what we understand from Joel is this, the last days have arrived, the days of prophetic fulfillment, in other words, are here. It's finally happening. Everything you've been longing for and waiting for, Peter is saying, is here. The Spirit of God has been poured out, and that's what you're seeing happening here today. The day of the Lord is coming. The return of Jesus is coming with judgment and renewal to follow. That day is still coming, but what he's saying is these are earth-shattering events, and it's finally here. Fulfillment. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, he says, will be saved. Joel is saying, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. He who is. Everyone who calls on Israel's God will be saved. So he's holding out hope. Joel is holding out hope, and Peter is proclaiming this hope, and he's proclaiming this fulfillment. And then in verse 23, he speaks 
uh, that this is God's deliberate plan. That yes, you crucified Jesus, but this was God's deliberate plan. None of this was outside of God's control. This was God's rescue plan the entire time. And it emphasizes God's sovereignty and man's responsibility where both are true. Man had a significant part to play. We, we know this. We read about it when we walked through the Gospel of Mark. They crucified Jesus. But this was God's plan. You see, the greatest expression of human wickedness, the greatest expression of injustice that fell on Jesus, all the corruption and the evil, would in no way outmatch or outwit God's rescue operation. And then in verse 24, Peter continues to testify to the resurrection. It was the very thing he was eager to do, the very thing the Spirit of God had filled him to do. God, he says, raised him, Jesus, from the dead. Oh, he's proclaiming the person and the work of Jesus boldly and confidently. Then in verses 25 through 28, he begins to quote Psalm 16. Do you see what he's doing? He's leaning on the Scriptures. He's proclaiming Christ and the resurrection from the scriptures. The early church knew how to do this. I mean, they they had grown up with the scriptures, with the prophets, with the Psalms, with the story of Israel. Oh, they loved God's word. And they proclaimed Christ from the scriptures. We're getting a crash course from Peter, his first sermon on how to do this. He's leaning on Joel 2, but now he quotes Psalm 16. Why is he doing this? It's a Psalm of David, King David. It's a prophecy about the greater descendant of David who would sit on David's throne. David was promised that he would always have one on his throne. How, how would that happen? David was a king, but he was also a prophet. And he, it says, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection. David was clinging to what God had promised, that he would always have someone seated on his throne. David didn't fully grasp how that would all unroll, But David was speaking of it prophetically in Psalm 16. And Peter's leaning on that. And he's telling all those who were gathered who would have known this psalm. This is Jesus. This is who David spoke of. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 110 in verses 33 and 34. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. The early church loved to lean on this passage. We don't have a lot of time to explore Psalm 110. I encourage you to check it out on your own. But the main point, the bottom line, is that Peter is proclaiming Jesus as both Lord and Christ. He is the promised anointed one who would come and redeem and deliver. He is the promised Messiah, the promised king. He is Israel's Messiah that they've been waiting for. But not only Israel's, ours as well. And he is Lord. He is the sovereign master. He rules and he reigns. He's supreme. As Messiah, he's the fulfillment of all of Israel's expectations for a descendant to, to be on, seated on David's throne. They would have been waiting for this. And as Lord, he is at the right hand of the Father as sovereign master. Now they heard this and they were cut to the heart. And they said, what? What do we do? What do we do? And finally, we see the promise is for you. Peter tells him, 
Repent. Be baptized. Receive the promise. It's for all those who are far off. It's for you. I want you to imagine that you're there. You hear this message from Peter. You hear him leaning on the prophets and on the Psalms. You hear him proclaiming the risen Christ. And there you are, standing in the crowd. You had heard the wonders of God proclaimed in your own native tongue. Your jaw's just hanging open. Your eyes are just wide, and you're thinking, if this is true, what do I do? That was the right question. What should we do? Maybe you come to the realization that you're headed in the wrong direction. What you thought was right actually is wrong. What you thought was safe is actually the most dangerous direction of all. It's as if you've been riding a bike down a steep slope only to discover you have no brakes and you can see where the path gives way to a sharp cliff. So the wheels begin to shake and unless you stop, you're going over. Unless someone does something, unless someone gets in the way, you're a goner. You know, I, I, this reminds me actually, one summer I was riding dirt bikes with a friend and uh, I hit a bump and, and the, the dirt bike started going out of control, and, and I just didn't know what to do. I wasn't, like, really good on dirt bikes. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Hit this bump, and no one's around. I'm just like, what do I do? I'm going out of control, and I see this barbed wire fence in front of me, and I'm heading right for it, and I just let go. And the bike goes out from under me. I, I must have, like, jumped up a little bit, too. I just let go, and, and there it went. Boom, into the barbed wire fence, and I fell on my backside, and I was like, catch my breath. But I, I didn't go in the barbed wire fence, did I? <laughs> At least not that time. I'll tell you about another time I went into the barbed wire fence. But um, I let go. I watched the bike plunge into the fence. I had to let go. Otherwise, I, I, was, I was a goner. <laughs> they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought Jesus was a heretic and a blasphemer. They had participated in his crucifixion. They had participated in his judgment. Many there. They thought they had done the right thing. Now Peter comes in and he says, no. Jesus is raised to life. And though you, you murdered him, you crucified him, this was God's plan to bring deliverance. Now he is both Lord and Messiah. And they're cut to the heart. And he says, be rescued. Let God rescue you. He's saying Jesus is standing in the way. He stands in the way of you in the cliff's edge. He stands in the way of you in the barbed wire fence. He stands in the way of you and I and deserved judgment. So how? How can you be rescued? How can you be rescued? And, and Peter says it. Repent. Repent and be baptized. Now, repent is a word that I think needs to be defined again and again. What is repentance? It's turning in the opposite direction. It's turning away from what you are doing and turn it away in the opposite direction. It's an about face. But really, when we think about it more, it's a radical change in a person's central affections. It's a radical change in our convictions. It's a radical change in our life's direction. Repent. Turn away from living for yourself and turn to the living God. Repent. Own up to the, to the rebellion 
and, and the hard-heartedness and the sin that you've, that you've been walking in. Repent. Turn away from it. Own up to the fact that you can't save yourself, that you need Christ. Repent. This is the way to be rescued. There is no other way. Repent and be baptized, Peter says. So here they are, thousands gathered, and they're cut to the heart, and they've heard this story, and like, what do we do? Repent. Okay. And be baptized. What's baptism? Baptism in itself doesn't save you, but it is a symbol of forgiveness and cleansing of new life with a new center, with Jesus as your hope. It symbolizes this participation in Jesus' death and his resurrection. You go under the water and you come out a new person, cleansed. Oh, this already happened by his spirit coming into your life, repenting and trusting in Christ as your, your savior, as your king, the son of God. But what you do in baptism, and it's so sweet, it's so beautiful. I love, love uh, going to baptisms and participating in them. Just this, this like, full-on identification with Jesus' finished work on our behalf. And it's this public declaration that you belong to Jesus. It's sweet. And it's part of God's rescue plan. It's an outward expression, a public expression of what's happened in our hearts, of our faith, of our repentance. And notice when the baptism took place. It took place right away. Repent and be baptized. 3,000 people. Imagine 3,000 people looking for a place to be baptized in the city of Jerusalem. Must have been really cool. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, Peter quotes Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, on the name of Yahweh, will be saved. Then, in verse 38, Peter makes this deliberate connection to the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling people who are saying, what do we do? What do we do? Call on the name of Jesus Christ. I thought it was the name of Yahweh. You see what he's doing there? Jesus is God. He's recognizing Jesus as God. There is no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. This is God's work. He's the Savior. He's the gift giver. And what happens when you place your faith in Jesus? You receive the promised Holy Spirit that day. There is no two-tiered Christianity, some with the Spirit, some without. If you are a Christian, you are indwelled, empowered. You have the presence of the Spirit with you. And we're empowered to be witnesses. We're emboldened to share this gospel, this good news of who Jesus is. Now we can say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We can live this self-controlled, upright life. No, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm saying I'm empowered by the very presence of, of God the Spirit who's with me day in and day out. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. And Jesus was eager to ascend so he would send the helper. But Jesus also said, I will be with you to the end of the age. So which is it? Is it Jesus or the Spirit who's with us? The answer is yes. This is for us, church. I want us to really let this soak in. Please don't assume that this is for someone else. When you hear the call to repentance, 
and to belief. Evaluate where you are. Ask yourself where you are. What do you believe of Jesus? Do you recognize him as Lord and Messiah? If if you can hear my voice, this is for you. The promise is for you. There is hope. There is hope for you. There is hope held out for your children and all who are far off, Peter's saying. And with many other words, it says in verse 40, he warned them. So we have this small portion of Peter's sermon. (laughs) He ends his sermon by calling them out of this corrupt generation. Where does he get the language of corrupt generation? Now, you remember I told you in the beginning how Moses ascended Mount Sinai to receive the commands, the law, that covenant from God. And then when he came down the first time, what did he find? He found Israel impatient as all get out, and they, they put all their jewelry together and created an idol and called this idol, this golden calf, Yahweh. And so Moses, he throws the tablets down and they smash, and, he, and, and judgment falls that day. And 3,000 people die. Now Moses would go back up the mountain and receive the law and come back. But 3,000 people died. It was a day of rebellion, a day of corruption. And Peter is leaning on, on that story. He's saying, come out of this corrupt generation. Now what happens? 3,000 people come to faith. Promises are being met. Something new and beautiful is being established. It's a new day. It's a new covenant. Isn't that beautiful? It's a harvest. The first fruits of what would be a worldwide harvest. Now, as we close, have you repented? Have you repented? If if you're a follower of Jesus, there was a moment in time where you repented for the first time, where you owned the reality that Jesus is king, is the Messiah, he's the son of God, and there's no other way. (laughs) You recognize your sin, and you call on him to save. Now, along the way, we're repenting, we're asking God for forgiveness, we're wrestling with sin, but I'm talking about that point of entry. I'm talking to all of you today, have you repented? Have you repented Have you been baptized? If you've not been baptized, let's do it. Tonight, and I'm serious, my house, six o'clock tonight. If you're a believer and you've not been baptized, I wanna invite you to my house, my neighbor's pool. We're gonna do a baptism tonight. No more dragging your feet. If you are sitting here and you're realizing and connecting the dots like they were and you're cut to the heart and you're saying to yourself, all right, this is real, Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm placing my faith in him today. I want to know. I want to know. And you should join us tonight to be baptized. For all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you realize the significance of what we've received when we, have, when we came into a relationship with Christ, that we've received the promised gift of the Holy Spirit? And this is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. We're in the last days, the days of fulfillment. God has kept his promise. God's rescue plan has always been Jesus. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is both Lord and Christ. What does this mean? 
What should we do? Repent and believe and receive the promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what we've been able to uh, learn here this morning. Acts chapter 2 is just loaded with fulfillment. I know that, Lord, a lot was said, a lot of stories and prophecies leaned on. I pray that it has brought clarity. I pray that it has helped connect the dots. But most of all, I just pray, Father, that Jesus has been exalted. And that, Lord, if anyone is here today who has come to that point where they've been wrestling with the reality of who Jesus is, and now it's becoming clearer to them, and, Lord, I pray you lead each one to a place of repentance. It's your kindness that, has, that leads us to repentance. And so we look to you for that. Lord, for anyone who's been walking with you but has not obeyed your command to be baptized, Lord, I pray you lead them to a place of conviction to be baptized, to obey. Father, thank you that we get to celebrate the gift of your spirit, your presence with us. We love you. We love you because you have first loved us. And we thank you.